Good morning, everyone. I don't think, no, I know, but I've never had a very peaceful time of prayer before a message. Um, usually we're kneeling before the message and it just tends to be a stressful time. Um, in some ways, I don't ever expect that to go away. Some mornings, though, it is more pronounced than others, and this morning is one of those mornings. I especially um, uh, need your prayers this morning. As Christians, we all have the basic idea that God is triune, that he is three in one. But unofficially, does it make any difference in our Christian life? I pray to God. I know Jesus died for my sins. I read my Bible, I try to live in a way that pleases my Heavenly Father, but maybe that's enough. The author, Sam Albury, said, The doctrine of the Trinity is carefully filed in the drawer of things that all good Christians believe, and sometimes not seen again. And... In one of his books, he, he listed a handful of things that held him back for a while from looking further into the Trinity. The first being, well, it doesn't make sense. God is one and he's also three. How does that work? Um, then, second, well, it's not meant to make sense. It's just one of those things. It's, it's a mystery and we shouldn't pry to even try to analyze it in a, in a rational way would be to miss the point. It might even spoil it as a mystery. Um, it feels much more deep if we leave it mysterious. There's nothing deep about God for the sake of being deep. The deep things of God are deep because God is deep and our comprehension capabilities are more shallow than he is deep. God doesn't need to uh, make some sort of false extra depth or murkiness to himself to make him deeper. Um, third, well, maybe it's too technical. Only a brainiac or a theologian can do it. Um, and if you, if you really start to crack open that box about what is the Trinity, a lot of long words and confusing ideas spill out. And um, theologians, when they start talking about it, Start throwing around words that sound otherworldly. Fourth, maybe it's a little embarrassing. We present Christianity and say, in the big picture, this makes sense. God is rational. You start from that foundation in Genesis, it, it all makes sense. But then someone asks about the Trinity, and maybe we stutter a little bit, and then we just start to hope that it doesn't come up. Or, for some people, maybe it's just irrelevant. Even if we break through all the mess and the big words, we have something that makes no difference to us. What do we do with it? One God, three persons, so what? What practical difference is there? Maybe some view it in the same way that they view uh, quadratic equations in school. Well, what's this ever going to do for me? Or maybe some people view it the way they view poetry in school. What's this ever going to do for me? And it was interesting to look at some of the things people have written and the talks people give about the Trinity. And I was struck by how often they can give the impression that, yes, they've, they've been wrestling with this and, and bringing some sense to it, but they don't really know what to do with it. The... Um, 
Athanasian Creed. Um, Athanasius fought hard for the church to be clear on what the Trinity was and wasn't, and that creed uses incomprehensible a lot when it talks about God and the Trinity. Uh, maybe an uncomfortable amount, really. I didn't find a lot of things where people were talking about what difference it makes to know that God is one, God is three. It does make sense, though, when we look at what the Bible says. Okay, foundationally, God wants us to understand what he is like. He wants us to know him as much as we are capable in our humanity. He wants us to understand and know him. And a big Example is not the word I want. Something that, that struck me differently as I studied this time, Sinclair Ferguson had a quote, I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. And if you read John 14 through 17, you start to realize there's something here that we are supposed to be paying attention to. Understanding the Trinity helps us to make sense of, or, or make more sense maybe, of some of the things we hold dear, friendship, marriage, church, love, service, even identity, we see more, we, we can find even more significance when we look at it in the light of Trinity. The Bible doesn't use the word Trinity in either Testament, but there is a big difference between the word being absent and the concept being absent. Trinity is a term adopted by Christians to capture the truth that one God has shown himself to be three persons. It's a word used to help us sum up his three-in-oneness, tri-unity, unity being one, tri being three. That is what gets smushed into this word trinity that we use. Very few passages are about the trinity. We don't have Paul writing a chapter here or there, here's what you need to know about the trinity. We do have some fairly direct teachings from Jesus, uh, again, especially in John 14 through 17. Most of the time, though, it is interesting to, to, to see that, that Trinity comes up as um, essential background to the main point of a passage without itself being the main point. It's, it's foundational, uh, foundationally necessary for the passage to come together. So it could be like the foundation of a building. In a lot of buildings, you don't see the foundation or you don't see much of it, but it is core to the building standing. I thought of it also like the, the town water tower out here. In a lot of the town, the water tower is often in view, but it's often not the thing you're looking at. And I see a parallel to Trinity in Scripture, where it's not often the thing in view, but it is there, or it's not often the thing in focus, but it is there in view. Most insights on the Trinity in some ways are riding along with the other insights that are being given. The title I have on my notes this morning is God in Light of the Trinity, and I thought in starting out that this message would be more uh, practical, maybe, and anyway, I have some notes that I've started, us in light of the Trinity, but that's not happening today. We'll see if it comes together for next month or not. But this morning, I want to think about God in light of the Trinity. Two main focuses as we think about God in light of the Trinity. 
this morning are God as one and God as Trinity. God as three. So Mark 12, verse 28, we're going to read a couple verses here from Mark to get us started. We looked at these verses not terribly long ago. It was interesting once I started digging into Trinity. Um, had a lot of time on the road Friday so I could listen to audio Bible, but I couldn't do a lot of reading. And I was struck by, as I was thinking about Trinity, how much of the passages I've read over, especially this summer, kept coming to me as well. We see, we see that about God in this, or we see it in that. So here in Mark 12, verse 28, we have one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? So we're starting with a question. We don't know why he asked precisely. He could have been impressed with Jesus' debating skills. Jesus had really been uh, working well with all the questions and challenges being thrown at him. So he could have simply been impressed with that. He may have been bewildered. The uh, Jewish lawyers had come up with 613 specific commandments, so maybe he was just wanting some help. What really matters? And he had seen that Jesus was an astute teacher and thought, here's my opportunity to dig through some of this mess and figure this out. What is God's highest focus? What's the bottom line, teacher? So we don't know all his motivations, but Jesus answers his request for a commandment with a statement that comes from Deuteronomy. So in Mark 12, 29, he says, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the bottom line, the foundation. Everything, including how he wants us to live, the commandments, the do's and don'ts, all of it must be built on this. Following God must follow knowing God. Jesus put front and center in this, he, he put front and center this particular characteristic of God, his oneness. This truth about God um, precedes, it comes before all else. There, there almost seems like there could be a little bit of a a rebuke here with Jesus starting this way because if we start to think about the oneness of God, picking one of his commandments that's most important makes less sense. It becomes maybe moot if you say, well, God is one, then you can't really start ranking his uh, desires and his commandments. These aren't options on a menu. There's the same God who is one, standing behind them all. Anyway, that is where we start. God is one. It's a short phrase with a big impact. One means God is unique. In, in the Western world, we're familiar with God, with, with one God as a concept. In our culture, you would generally believe in one God or no God. Um, we're, we're used to that concept of a unique, one-of-a-kind God. In the Western world, whatever you think about God, if God comes into the equation, it tends to be only one of him. And while the norm in the West is to believe or not in one God, that is not the norm of the ancient world. They were used to different gods for different things. You had gods of commerce, war, sport, love, travel. The more the better. The more gods you had, the better odds you had of covering all your bases. You're, you're kind of hedging your bets. To believe in one god, like the Jews or the Christians did, was, was a little bit goofy to a lot of the people looking on. But the Bible has always insisted on Here's a term you'll run across sometimes, monotheism, one God, single God, one deity, monotheism. And the Bible has always insisted on it. It's never left room for there to be 
more than one God. It is straightforward. There is only one God. That Deuteronomy verse that Jesus quoted here in Mark, it was not an obscure concept that only some of his people knew. It was foundational to God's people. They, they would have quoted it morning and evening. There were others. One that stood out to me was in Isaiah 45, where it says, I am the Lord, there is no other. And that is, I am Jehovah, I am the I am. I am the Lord, there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, Jehovah, there is no other. Now, this was not just a math fact, like how many states are there? Or how many players uh, compose a baseball team? This was more than just a math fact. It is, it is a truth that makes a big practical difference. And there are many applications we could start to dig into when we start saying, what does it mean that, that there's only one God? What flows out of that? But I just want to focus on two that stand a little taller than the others, devotion and mission. So when we think about the oneness of God, there is no God beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The two things that flow out of that that I want to focus on this morning are devotion and mission. So God's uniqueness compels wholehearted devotion. So God is one means our devotion must also be total. So here in Mark 12, 29 and 30, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. So this God is one statement is not incidental to what follows. It wasn't just something that Jesus had to get out of the way because that comes first in Deuteronomy before you get to the meat of the matter of love God with all you've got. It is the, the foundation that it's built on. The Lord is one. Therefore, we love him in all we have, all we are. His oneness and the totality of our love is tied together. Someone with two part-time jobs is not expected to give all their work life to one of those bosses. It is expected that they're splitting them, that they're trying to be fair to them. God's oneness means he deserves our everything. There's no compartmentalizing. It's not, well, he gets some of my heart or some of my mind or some of my soul It's all too easy to allow God in some, but not all. Or no, I should say to try to allow God into some and not all. Or to give him some, but not all. He can have my Sundays, but can he have my Saturdays? He can have my church life, but does he get all of my social life? He can have my work, but not my wallet. Or maybe he can have my wallet, but not my dedication. He can have my industry. He can have what I do and the energy I put into, into life and living it, but not my fantasy. Each of us have unique areas where we feel a tug or a nudge or something, something where we're, we're inclined to rope off a section or hold something back from God. And it's not... It's not it's unique. Unique is probably the wrong word because some of us have the same one, but it's it's individual for each of us. Where Byron is tempted to hold something back from God may be different from where I am or where from Nathan is or from where Anson is, but all of us have that temptation in us. But is there anything in my life that is out of bounds to God? In the one Sam Albury book I read, he, he talked about how he, he loves um, hosting people. Um, he, he enjoys being uh, hospitable. He loves having people over to his house and um, you know, feeding them a meal and playing games and whatever. 
but he also has clutter and you have to do something with all the clutter and mess because you don't want the people to come in and, and see you know, that your house is a mess. And so he has this spare room that before all the people are supposed to come over, well, if, if you don't know where it goes, you just put it in there and that door stays closed. When the company is there, the spare room is not part of the area that you're allowed into. It's just always closed. It's, it's set aside, not for them. Do I have that in my life? Where there's this little corner that, well, that's just where I'm going to put the things that, that's just not where God's supposed to go. I, I've given him my heart. He has the living room. He has the dining room. He has the kitchen. He has the bedroom. Maybe he even has a spare room, but there's a closet somewhere that I try to rope off. That doesn't fit with the oneness of God and my devotion to him. With God, it's all or nothing. He deserves all of my life, love, heart, soul, mind, strength. He deserves all of me. And the truth is, I need him in all of my life. There is no corner of my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, that his presence would not be a huge blessing. At some point, we're going to get back to working through the book of James. He wrote to people who were struggling with this truth, people who seemed to think they could blend following God with the way of the world. God gets part, but not all of it. And you see that theme in, in the book of James. And James calls them double-minded. We would say two-faced, probably, in, in our day and age. But James says, well, he... He, he exposes it as hypocrisy. If we profess to follow one God, but our life says something else. And James, in James chapter 2, verse 19, he calls, he calls us out if we're trying to live like that or if we are living like that. You believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. If we simply believe that there is one God, but live as if there is part of our life that we get to hold back from him. How much of a tragedy is it that demons have a, have a more consistent theology than someone who claims to follow God and then lives holding back part of their life? They know God is one, and their belief is evident in, in their trembling or their shuddering, and James seems to say, well, his, his readers, his target audience there are worse off by trying to lead part Christian lives. James calls their bluff and says it doesn't work that way. Half-hearted faith shows that they're serving a God that isn't worthy of everything. He's not the God who is one. In James chapter 4, He uses adultery as the parallel for us to understand this, this half-faith toward God. Adulterers and James 4.4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is not one for sugarcoating. Spoonful of sugar does not help the medicine go down in James's book. You're an adulterer in your relationship with God if you think that you can serve him and also hold back from him. James calls for repentance, for recognizing the filthiness when we have not, are not giving our all to God. He calls us to be brokenhearted, to weep. As I read that yesterday, it struck me. Amazing is the wrong word because it sounds too positive, but it, it's amazing that we can be brought to tears by reading Old Yeller, but it's that I'm so much more slow to be moved to tears by my own sin and rejection of God. Anyway, moving into mission. God's uniqueness also compels Christian mission. I should, should have had a little recap there. God's oneness and our devotion to him are linked. 
the God who is unique, the God who is one, the God who is everything, deserves our everything. Mission. God's uniqueness also compels Christian mission. In, in Scripture, we have a direct link between God's oneness and our mandate to call all people to come to him. And this, this is our lens through which we look to view all other belief systems. If, if somebody is believing something about God or a deity that doesn't fit into this one God concept, we say, well, they're misled, they're misguided, they're not understanding, they're not seeing the true God. So Corinth was a place of many gods, and you could think of, I was going to say a buffet, but we we have our um, meal that we're going to share here after a little bit today, and there's just going to be laid out all sorts of choices for us, and this is pretty much how the people of Corinth would have had their their pick of gods. Um, there, there was just a buffet there of options, choices wide, and maybe even overwhelming, but you could mix and match to your taste. And the early Christians were cautious. They were concerned about, the, about contamination when living in an environment like that where people were picking and choosing from this just massive array of gods that they would worship or pray to or bring into their life. They would serve in some way. And these early Christians were, were surrounded by this. Most of us don't run into this issue. We've never had the practical question of, well, what do I really do if I'm presented with food that was offered to an idol or dedicated to an idol? It's not something that we really relate to very well. It's very theoretical to us when we read these passages in 1 Corinthians. But consider, if you were living then and you had an invitation to your neighbors there in Corinth and you went and you said, I'm going to be like Jesus and I'm going to eat with these people, these sinners, these people who are living in service to these fake gods, and you're there eating, and you discover that the bread and meat you're chewing have been dedicated to some pagan god. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to spit it out? Are you going to pray a guilty prayer while you quickly chew and swallow? Are you going to eat it all down and ask for seconds? And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, is, is talking to these concerns and he has two things to say in response to them. In 1 Corinthians 8, 4, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. So one, idols are nothing. They may be worshipped by your neighbors, but they are not real. They are figments of imagination. Then he says, there is no God but one. He comes back to the oneness of God as a foundational truth for them to build their lives and their practices around. Um, verses 5 and 6, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom we are all things, and through whom we live. If the God of the gospel is one, the gods of this world must be nothing. Uh, Paul calls them so-called gods. God's oneness excludes all other supposed contenders. Baal is not real. Jupiter is not real. That's Jupiter the god, not the planet. I believe there is a planet out there we call Jupiter. Uh, Vishnu is not real. None of these are real. Paul says, because God is one, there is one God. That excludes the possibilities of the other. Paul later talks about how there is danger lurking in the um, demonic workings behind those fake gods, that there are forces that will use those false ideas of fake gods to, to bring about bad things. But the key point made is those gods themselves cannot exist. They don't exist. For the sake of time, we aren't going to read Psalm 96. But if you read 
Psalm 96 this afternoon, you're going to see a proclaiming of the one true God and how that one true God is to be proclaimed to all, not just in the quiet of your prayer closet. The one true God is to be proclaimed to all in, in counter to the claims of false gods. You could maybe see it as we proclaim the true God in the way that Daniel prayed out his window, not just in his prayer closet. We proclaim the true God wherever and whenever. We don't just do this um, where it's only the people who agree with us that hear it. We're willing for the whole world to hear and know of the one true God. There is one God to be proclaimed to all. Let's go for a moment from Corinth to Rome. Some of the Jewish Christians in Paul's day were deeply concerned about some of the implications of, of Paul's teachings in his gospel. As he shared, they were accustomed to, Jewish Christians were, were accustomed to people from other backgrounds. They had to become culturally Jewish in order to convert to faith in God. As a Jew, if you were uh, proselytized, um, you had to become a Jew to, to come into a right relationship with God. And this was something hard for them to break out of. It was part of the package of things that were presumed necessary to being made right with God. And so Jesus' salvation through faith and the sacrifice of Jesus didn't take away some of the confusion and struggle for people to, to work through that. I'm really struggling with, I know there's so much I want to cover, but uh, Romans, Romans 3, verses 29 and 30, we'll just touch on this a little bit. Paul uses the oneness of God to help them uh, build the correct foundation around this idea of Jewish cultural practices having to be present for people to become a Christian. So in Romans 3, 29 and 30, Paul says, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. He uses the oneness of God to again build the foundation for this is how we get through these questions around Judaizing Christianity. Do people need to become Jews to be to be good Christians and, and to be a part of the Christian church, which was made up of a whole lot of Jews who had turned and seen Christ as seen Jesus as the Christ. And he brings them back to there is one God. God is one. And God is God of all peoples. And he gives some rhetorical questions to, to help them work through it. And because he is God of all peoples, they all came to the same. They all came on the same basis, regardless of background, culture, etc. We all get right with God the same way, through Jesus. We could spend time talking about the dangers that come with um, what's normal to us becomes the standard. What's normal to me is what I expect everybody else to live up to, and there's a lot of problems we could think about with that. Anyway, we don't have time. No matter what or who is in someone's life, there is one God that they need. There is one God who created them. There is one God that they need. So we think of, of God's oneness as foundation, as the bottom line. Everything is built on that. Let's think for a moment about the integrity of God's oneness. We're never done getting to know God. We're never at the point where there will be no more surprises or ability to learn and maybe that's one of the thrills of, of our Christian life is discovering greater depths to, to God. As we go deeper and deeper into his oneness, we, we continue to find that there is more and more of him that maybe we had seen before. The Lord is one. Jehovah, God, is one, tells us far more than, than a mathematical truth. Like I said earlier, it's not just how many states are there or, or something like that. It's not just saying, well, there, there's, there only happens to be one of him. There's not two or four or twelve. It's, it's telling us something deeper than that. And the Hebrew word for one in, in Deuteronomy, where Jesus quoted there in, in Mark 12, that 
that Hebrew word used there has a flavor to it, maybe is the, is the way to say it. It means more than just uh, digitally singular. It, it, it speaks to the unity, that he's undivided. It has the, the idea, the concept of undivided. So not just one as opposed to many, but, but undivided. There, there's integrity there. There's no contradiction. There's no inconsistency. All he is, all he desires, all he says, all he does is of one piece. It all holds together. All of it fits perfectly. There's, there's consistency to everything about God. Everything else we go on to learn about God's nature has to be understood with, with that context. Whatever we go on to discover about God being triune, or to, to think about Trinity, will not in any way contradict the integrity of, of God's oneness. It all has to happen within that framework of his complete unity, his oneness. So understanding God's unity will have big implications for how we view him, how we think about the death of Jesus, how we live our lives as Christians. As we come to God as being three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we have to keep in mind that these persons exist in complete unity. That means we can't have one person of the Trinity without the others. And many wrong views of God are, are straightened out by getting back to that truth. You cannot have one without the others. I was going to put a diagram on the board. I don't, I'm not going to take the time to draw that right now. <coughs> God is three persons. These three persons are one God. They are distinct but united. They cannot be separated. A lot of children, at least at some point, hopefully they're taught pretty quickly that this is not okay, but at some point, a lot of children have tried the thing of they wanted something, went to one parent, whoever was closer probably, got no satisfaction from their request, and went to try to get to the other parent before the parents could confer and uh, thought maybe they could they could get what they wanted. This never works with the persons of the Trinity. You can't ask the son hoping for him to give you what the father has denied. It's just, it, it doesn't work. The oneness, the integrity means it, it can't happen. It, it just isn't. You can't fall out with the son and think you are all right with the father. Well, I'm not into Jesus, but I believe in God and follow him and it's all going to work out okay. No. It doesn't work that way. Seems pretty obvious, but some act that way. Some, well, they don't do Jesus, but they believe in God, and that's all that matters. Scripture is very clear. 1 John 2, 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. There is no God the Father without God the Son. You cannot do that. It doesn't work. They exist in perfect unity. Not believing in Jesus ultimately is not believing in the God who is there. And rejecting Jesus is rejecting the Father who he perfectly reveals. Jews who reject Jesus as the Christ don't really believe in the God of the Scripture. See, we can, we can almost start to feel like, well, they're at least half in because they claim to follow the God of the Old Testament. To reject Jesus shows that they are not believing in the Father. Rejecting the Son means you are nowhere with God at all. We can't play the persons of the Trinity against each other. And uh, I won't take the time yet. We can... No, I won't take the time. You relate to the Trinity or you don't relate to God at all. I get a little nervous when I hear statements like, the word without the Spirit will dry you up, the Spirit without the word will blow you up. At first that sounds great. It's a great pithy quote to help identify problems of ignoring the Spirit or the word. The problem is that statement implies the need for balance between Spirit and word as if they're somehow heading in different directions or there's a tension between them and, and they need the, the moderating influence of each other. And that, that kind of thinking misunderstands the Word and the Spirit. The Word of God isn't a dry, dusty thing. Um, the Word of God is incendiary. My heart was hot within me while I was musing or meditating. The fire burned. That's from Psalm 39. Uh, Luke 24, the, those who had heard Jesus speaking on the road 
They said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Sounds like the word is pretty fiery and not something that is just holding back you know, the spirit from running amok. And um, spirit is not some chaotic force that's charging around like a child who's had too much sugar or some caffeine or whatever and, and, and the spirit is out there and he's really going to lead you wrong, which is the way we can sometimes maybe think, definitely talk. When, uh, when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. doesn't sound like uh, the Spirit's going to be running around crazily. The relationship between the Word and the Spirit is, is, is like a happy marriage, not like a, a tense, well, we've got to hold each other in check sort of situation. But above all else, it misunderstands the fact that God is one. There are no two elements of him or, in, or his work that are in tension or contradiction. We could think about, was the son reluctant to give his life? Was the father reluctant to give his son? We don't have time to get into the scripture. But scripture makes it clear that they were together. They were both in this. All right. I thought I was doing good at trimming my notes down to actually fit into the time. We've thought some about God as one and why it matters. Let's spend a little bit of time here on the God, God as one who is three. The Trinity describes, actually, no, I want to read a couple of verses here. Very familiar verses, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. going to be our foundation for these next five minutes. JP asked me if I wanted to preach next Sunday and he would teach intermediate class. Maybe I should have taken him up on it and then just put this in two back-to-back sermons, but I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think he was serious about it either. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Following Jesus means becoming involved in the Trinity. The Trinity describes the Christian name for God. It's God's way of being God. It provides the framework and rationale for our discipleship, the context for properly understanding who Jesus is and why he came. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read a lot of what I had about Trinity in the Old Testament, but it is there. Um, In Genesis... Let us make man in our image. That is a plurality. It's not God having a conversation with the angels. As some people say, the angels were not co-creators with God. It is God speaking in his um, threeness, uh, saying, let us make man in our image. In Genesis 11, at Babel, let us go down there and confuse their language. Following the death of King Uzziah, God looked for someone to act as as the mouthpiece for that next phase of prophecy. And Isaiah said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? God showed glimpses of um, his his threeness, even in the Old Testament. He speaks of himself in the plural. His oneness was not undifferentiated. He wasn't a, a mere singularity. And that plurality helps us to start to make sense of something else we see in the Old Testament. Uh, No, we can't get into that. The angel of God and um, read Genesis 18 when the Lord, Jehovah, appeared to Abraham by the terebinth trees. Sorry, I just can't do that. We We need to get into the New Testament in these last three minutes. The revelation of God in the Bible is cumulative. It builds on itself. He reveals himself more and more as he 
builds on what has been revealed. What was suggestive of God's triune, three but unified nature in the Old Testament is made explicit in the New Testament. What was seen maybe as outlines before becomes much more clear. God is triune. Jesus himself told us, well, there in Matthew 28, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not the names. That is a singular. You baptize in the name. You baptize in the name of God, but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, to me, is one of the clearest passages you're going to turn to and see Jesus saying, God is one, God is three, and there's no, there's no way to argue with it. The gospel accounts of Jesus show that he is fully human. He wasn't like the um, Superman comic books where he, when he's in his secret identity, he's pretending to be human to get hurt. He struggles to lift something. He needs glasses. And it's all just a front that he's putting on. No, Jesus was human. His humanity was not a show or a front. It was real. He had a human body. He was born as a child. He needed to grow and develop physically. His body was subject to limitations and vulnerabilities. He got hungry, tired, thirsty. When he was beaten and tortured, at the end of his life, he was so weakened that someone else had to come and help carry his cross. That looks an awful lot like humanity. Because it was. His body bruised, his body hurt, and in the end his body died. He wasn't detached from what was going on around him. We see him in the Gospels experience joy, sorrow, love. We see that Jesus was authentically human. But the Gospels are just as clear that Jesus was fully divine. Sorry, folks. Now I'm in the, now I'm in the section of all the things I want to say and can't. The divinity of the Spirit. We also see in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is both divine and a distinct person. Um, the divinity of the Spirit is assumed in the Old Testament. The opening words of the Bible describe the Spirit as the Spirit of God. That's in Genesis. The Spirit is the divine agency through which God works, and the work of the Spirit is the work of God. That's a whole other message on the Spirit. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is equated with God in an almost casual manner, just kind of, yeah, that's the way it is. How you treat the Spirit is how you treat God. When Peter exposes the lie of Ananias, he says in one moment of lying to the Holy Spirit, and in that same statement, he says, you lied to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. The two are equivalent. By lying to the Spirit, you're lying to God because the Spirit is in every way God. The personhood of the Spirit. The New Testament shows the Spirit as being personal. It is easy for Christians to think of the Spirit as though he were some abstract force used by God from time to time, uh, maybe like a cattle prod, maybe like gasoline, however you tend to think of it, but just kind of this, this motivating force and not personal. But we need to remember that the Spirit is a person. Jesus speaks of the Spirit as a he, not an it, he is every bit as much a person of the Father as, as the Father and the Son. In the Bible, we see the Spirit's work described in personal terms. He persuades, prays, testifies, uh, cries out, can be grieved, creates, judges, leads, has a mind, can be blasphemed. The Holy Spirit is not raw divine power that sloshes around inside of us. He's a person who indwells us to whom we can relate. I'm going to take three extra minutes. We're going to five after. What the Trinity is and isn't. Consider again Jesus calling on his followers to make new disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That pretty much wraps it up for us. There is one God. He is three persons. But to 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 help clarify what's being said, it's helpful to look at what's not being said. It's not three gods. Jesus is not saying there are three gods. That's You'll run across that. It's called um, tritheism. That's not what he's saying. And some people paint that picture on Christianity. 
Uh, one name, not three. Jesus didn't say in the names of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, or in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. He said in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's singular. There was no little committee of gods who put their heads together and came up with this universe. Jesus speaks of the one name, singular name of God. There's one God. And it's not just three aspects of God. The Trinity doesn't just describe three aspects of God, the way we would say, well, God is love, God is justice, God is mercy, God is light. There's a belief, um, modalism, that says the Trinity simply describes uh, roles that God plays. He's the Father at one point and the Son at another point, Spirit at another. That's not consistent with Scripture. That's not what we're dealing with here. Jesus didn't say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as if they're roles that God was going to have to slip into and out of um, in you know, the amount of time it took for that uh, water to be poured during the baptism or to go down under the water and come back up, depending on how the person's being baptized. That's not the description Jesus gives. It's not a contradiction. That's what I'm going to close with. It is not a contradiction to speak of God in this way. There's one God, three persons. And some will say this doesn't and can't make sense. Um, if they're Christians, they might allow for it by just saying, well, it's all a mystery, and so I can accept it, even though it doesn't seem right. There's no real need to think about it. No. Uh, and for some non-Christians, it's just one more confirmation of them that Christians are a little off. There is no contradiction here. And I'm not saying that we can wrap our head around all the details of how it works. The way in which God is one is different from the way in which he is three. God is not one something and somehow three of the same something. If we were to say God is one person and God is three persons, this would be a contradiction. But the way in which he is one is, is not the same way in which he is three. And yes, it is hard to understand, but at the very least, we need to recognize that it's not a contradiction for us to believe in God who is three and one, to believe in tri-unity, trinity. At the center of our faith, it it stands behind all of reality, and it's not a big contradiction that we're standing in front of. The name into which we Christians are baptized, the name of God, shows us that God is triune. This is not something he becomes as scripture unfolds. This is who he is and always has been. God is one, and that one God is three persons. Thank you for your time and especially for your patience. God bless you.